The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. The text today is out of the Gospel of John, the first chapter. I'll be reading verses 29 through 37. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Otherwise, we have it for you on the screen. It says this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one I was talking about when I said, A man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I have been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John testified, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him. I did not know he was the one, but when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, The one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify that he is the chosen one of God. The following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples, and Jesus walked by. John looked at him and declared, Look, there is the Lamb of God. And when John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Now this is specifically something that is coming out of the heart of John the Apostle. God has deposited this theme within his heart. This is a major theme of all of John's writings. Okay, There are only two other places in the, in the entire New Testament where you see the phrase, the Lamb of God, outside of John's writings, then in John, in all of his writings, you see 31 times. So two by other authors, and then 31 times, all from John. So this is a major theme of his life. He wants everyone to know that Jesus is the Lamb of God. It's a number one theme. It is absolutely critical important to him that everybody understand that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Otherwise, he wouldn't be saying it over and over and over and over. So it's a major theme. But it's a little bit weird, isn't it? Do you call people the Lamb of God? I mean, maybe you have little children, you'd call them your sweet little lamb. But can you imagine me calling my oldest son, Addison, who's 21, my little sweet lamb? (laughs) He wouldn't talk to me for a month. (laughs) It's weird. That's not a name for deity. That's not a name for God. I mean, call him the lion or call him the tiger. Even the elephant is better than the sweet little lamb. That's not a name, not a normal name for God. And of course, it's, you see that because John is the only one who's talking about it. So is he implying that Jesus is the Lamb of God because he's a weak and frail person that is God? No. 
No, uh, that couldn't be farther from the truth. That is not what he said. So I think we need to look at three things this morning from this text to understand exactly what is he talking about? Why is he calling Jesus a lamb of God? So the first question is, why did he use that name? Two, did John's original audience understand what he meant? So when John said that about Jesus, those two disciples that were with him, did they know what he was talking about? And then number three, what does it mean for us? I mean, who cares, right? What does it mean to us? So let's look at all three of these. The first one, why did, Jesus, why did John use the name the Lamb of God? To understand this, you need to go back to the very beginning, the formation of the people of God, to the book of Genesis. So in your Bible, go all the way back to Genesis, the very first book. And Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now you'll see in this chapter that Adam and Eve sinned and then they took fig leaves and they covered themselves. They put them on their body, which probably looked really ridiculous, okay? They covered themselves in these figs and then they hid from God. And so God said, hey, where are you? Where are you? They come out, and then they reveal, they confess. Adam says it was all her fault. She made me do it. And uh, then she says it was all the, all the serpent's fault. He made me do it. And so it goes all down the line. But then the Lord said, okay, I'm going to catch this. I'm going to cover your nakedness by killing animals, making skins out of that, and that's going to cover you. So then we jump to chapter 4. Chapter 4 of Genesis 2, second part of 2 to 4. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the first fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. So right from the very beginning... Abel and Cain are demonstrating to God their commitment to him. Now, we know from the story that Cain's heart wasn't right, so God didn't accept his sacrifice, but Abel's heart was right. And what did he bring to God? He, he, he had a crop of sheep, and when all the sheep gave birth to their little lambs, he gathered those, the best ones, he killed them, and offered them as a sacrifice unto the Lord. It would be the very early notion of anyone giving money to God. Right? They don't have dollars and coins at this point. This is very, very early, early ancient culture. So all they have to give to God as a gift is these animals that they own. So they kill them because then that, they can't be used by anyone else. Then they offer it to God. Then you go down to Genesis chapter 8. Now the flood has taken place. It's over. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And then God responded to that. So he, like his 
descendants before him. He killed some animals, the best ones, put them on an altar, put it on fire, offered that to God. God saw that action that he was doing and then blessed him with a new covenant. New covenant is a rainbow. He says, and from now on, when you see the rainbow, it will remind you that I will never, ever destroy the earth like I did before. Okay? So this offering of animals established a covenant between God and mankind. Now, go down to Genesis 15. A few pages over. This is really important because in this chapter, we're looking at the life of Abram. Later, God changes his name to Abraham. But he was a very extraordinary person. I mean, he lived an incredible life of faith. Incredible. I mean, amazing life. An incredible person. Extraordinary faith. And this is a story in his life. This isn't one of the stories that people really remember or talk about. You know, you think of Old Testament stories, burning in the bush, and even Noah and different things. This one, most people read this and go right over it. But it's actually the most important one. So let's make it a little famous here today. Our little part. 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offering be. And Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land I possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good, at a good old age, and they shall come back from here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, 
a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Your offspring I give your offspring I give this land from the river of the Egypt to the great river of the river Euphrates. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Amorites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gershites, and the Jebusites. Now the reason I took the time to read through all of that is because of the amazing significance of what is going on here. First of all, Abraham or Abram is 99 years old. His wife, Sarah, is 90 years old. And this guy has been waiting 25 years for the promise of God to be fulfilled in his life. He wants to have a child, an heir to all that he has. And so God said to Abram, go. I'm not going to tell you where to go. I want you to go. And so then Abram says back to him, well, Lord, how will I know? Where to go? And God essentially says, just go, I'll tell you later. Then God says he's going to bless him greatly. And so Abram asks, well, Lord, how will I know that you are blessing me? How will I know? I don't have any children, and one of my servants is going to become my heir. And God says, no, Eliezer will not be your heir Go outside and count the stars if you can. And so Abram goes out and he says to the Lord, Lord, how will this be? And God says, I'll tell you later. So he says, I'm going to give you a great land and you're going to possess this land. Abram says back to God, well, God, how will I know that I'm going to possess this land? And God says, Bring me three, a three-year-old heifer, a female goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. And then it says that Adam or that Abram went about cutting them up into halves, except for the birds, and laying them out. Now, how did he know that that's what he was supposed to do? Because God didn't say what to do with them. He just said, bring them. And so... You have to understand ancient culture to understand this passage. Okay, Now, if you and I are going to make an agreement and we're friends or something, we may shake on the agreement. But if there's money involved, right, it's going to be written down and we're going to sign. If, a, if two lovers are at the church and they want to get married, right after the ceremony, they go to the pastor. He has a document from the state of Washington and you sign your commitment of marriage, right? So we have a set of laws in our culture that if you violate the contract, you signed, but you're not keeping up your end of the bargain, then we're going to go after you. We're going to either sue you or fine you or arrest you or something. But none of that existed here. This is a primitive, early, early, early culture. How do they make agreements with each other? Agreements that people were going to uphold. They didn't have ballpoint pens or paper or attorneys. It was a really good time. <laughs> so somewhere somebody came up with this concept. And this is what they did. We're going to make an agreement. 
okay? You're going to sell me these 500 cattle for these 800 sheep. So they take an animal, cut it in half, lay the halves on the ground, and both parties walk between the two halves saying this to each other. If I violate the agreement, if I do not hold up my end of the bargain, may it happen to me as it has happened to these animals. May my body be cut in two and laid out for the birds of prey and the wild beasts to come and eat off of my flesh. May I be stricken and torn to pieces and cut off from my family and killed if I don't keep my end of the bargain. Very effective. (laughs) You didn't go back on what you said. Because if you did, what does that mean? They round up the guys from the tribe, they go over, and they kill you. And they have a right to. Because you made an agreement. So God wants to make an agreement with Abram, a covenant. So he says to him, go and get these things. He instantly knew what God was saying. He knew, okay, we're going to sign on something. What is it? And so he lays out these things. And God is making a commitment. He says, you're going to be a great nation, a great people, people of God unto me. I'm going to do this. And this is the proof of my promise. And so then God walks between the two paths. And this is written in Hebrew. And the Hebrew words for what is going on here don't exist in English. So translators have a very difficult time, and no no offense to them, but difficult time translating this. And so it's translated as this flaming pot and... You know, and that's, that's probably not at all what happened. It, it, more accurately, and I heard this one commentator say this, it was like a, uh, a sustained lightning bolt appeared, and with power and fire and crackling and noises and flames, it passed through the halves. It was God in his presence going through the two halves of the animals. So God was saying this, Abram, I've made all these promises to you. Great nation, heir of you, even though you're really old, all of this. And if I don't keep my end of the bargain, then I will be cut in two, my body will be destroyed, I'll be pierced, I'll be killed, I'll be laid out, I will die. But notice this. And this is the most profound part of it. And you can look at the text yourself. I read it. You heard it. God did not tell Abram to walk through the pieces. Only God walked through. And if you look at all of Abram's questions, he's questioning this and that. How about this? And how about that? And how will I know? 
And then it says that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, how can that be all this righteous faith when the guy is doubting everything all along the whole path? Well, it's because he's not doubting God. He's doubting himself. He's saying, God, I can't hold up my end of the bargain. I mean, I'll blow it. You'll forgive me, sure. But then I'll blow it again and again, and and I'll sin 50 times, and after that you're going to say, forget it. I'm sick of you. Done with you. You're dead. It was terrifying. There's no way I can hold up my end of the bargain. I know me too, too well. I am sinful. I'm unfaithful. So God says, okay, I understand. That's why I will go through for both of us. And the basis of the covenant will be based upon my faithfulness and my righteousness, not yours. And so the covenant will remain intact because it is all done by God himself. Now, back to John. When John said this to his disciples, look, he shouts it there, you can see it, the exclamation point. The Lamb of God that was slain to take away the sins of the world, they knew exactly what he was talking about. Absolutely, instantly. They would think back to Jesus, they would think about Jesus, and see all the similarities between Jesus and the original covenant that God established with Abraham, their forefather. Abram was there, the sky turned dark. When Jesus breathed his last, the sky turned black. When Jesus finally gave up his last breath on the cross, he yelled out, what's the phrase? He said, It is finished. In other words, the contract has been satisfied. I have fulfilled the promise that went all the way back to Abram with my own death, my own piercing on the cross. My faithfulness purchased your faithfulness and so now we can be faithful we can be faithful we can be righteous we can be godly we can be all those things that we never thought we could be because we are that now on the basis of christ alone and not your actions you can't get to heaven by being good you're not good i'm not good We are there. We are Abraham's descendants because of the faithfulness of God and God alone. He established a covenant. He held it together and he fulfilled it in Christ. You know, some people say to me, you know, the Old Testament God is really different than the New Testament God. I mean, Jesus is so cool. And you read the Old Testament, he's like killing people left and right. You know, anybody who says that doesn't understand the Old Testament at all. 
The whole thing of the Old Testament, the all of it, all of it was to bring about the salvation of mankind. It was the act of God making forgiveness possible so that you and I could go to him with all of our junk and be accepted. We're accepted into the family. So Jesus didn't abolish the Old Testament. He, he fulfilled it. He fulfilled the terms of the contract. And on the cross, he said, it's finished. It's done. There's nothing more that can be done. Right? When the terms of the contract are fulfilled, the transaction's over, it's all done. Do people then go back and try and do more? No. It's done. It's done. Let's say you buy a car. Okay? You buy a car, you're going to sign a lot of paperwork. Even if you pay cash. You sign seven or ten pages. Right? So let's say you do all of that. You pay cash. The car is legally yours. It's in your name. Do you go back to the dealer and say, can I pay another 5000 No. No. Well, then why are you trying to be good? Why are you trying to pay God for all your terrible sins? Why are you trying to live up to something? Or, or, you know, if I do enough good things, I'll be accepted. It's done. It's done. No more sacrifices. It's done. They don't kill lambs anymore. And why? Because Jesus was the lamb. He was the final lamb. He, his sacrifice ended all penalty of sin. All we have to do is walk in it. Let me finish with this amazing story. This story that we have is from Eusebius. He was a historian, third century historian, and we actually have his writings. This story is included in that. You can Google it and see it for yourself. But he tells a story about how John the Apostle, who wrote this gospel, was very old. And he was in his town, and he was discipling a young man, probably in his teens. And he's telling him about God and about things of God, and he's discipling him. And then he has to go away on a missions trip. So he, he, goes, he, says, he says to one of the elders in the town, he says, I want you to watch over this young guy for when I'm gone. Watch out for him, help him. You know, he, he's dense. He needs help. So he goes away. He comes back, and he, he can't find the kid anywhere. He's looking for him. Hey, he goes to the elder and says, hey, what happened to that boy? He said, I'm sorry. He's, he's gone. He's dead. And he said, well, what do, what do you mean? What do you mean he's dead? He says, well... He abandoned his faith, and he joined a gang. And this gang is a gang of criminals, and they live up in the mountains. And in fact, it's so dangerous, nobody, nobody can go up there or they'll kill you. Because other people had tried, and they'd kill them because they don't want their hideout exposed. And so he's gone, and now he's one of the leaders in that gang. He's up on the mountains. First thing John says is, get me a horse. Gets on a horse, goes up there. Sure enough, they jump out of the bushes and they say, hey, we're going to capture you. And he says, oh, good. I wanted to be captured. Take me to your leader. So they took him into the camp. And the minute that young rebel saw him, he took off. 
He starts running. So John jumps off the horse. He's an old man. Okay? He starts running after him, saying, No, stop. Wait, it's not too late. I love you. It's not too late. The young man finally stops, begins to weep heavily, and then he and John go back on his horse to John's home where he disciples him again. That story tells me that it's not too late for me and it's not too late for you. Often our worst enemy is ourself. We feel condemned when we look in the mirror. We, we know what we've done. We know. And we feel like a bad person. You feel like trash. You feel dirty. You feel guilty. You're ashamed. And I want to tell you this morning that you don't have to live under that yoke anymore. That if you'll just turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want you. Then he will graft you into the covenant. And the promise will become yours. And you'll be a part of the family. And then, then an amazing thing happens. You get this confidence that you are forgiven. You're still aware of sin. You know you blow it. You're going to blow it again. But it's different now because you know you're forgiven. That's okay. Over the years, a ton of people, more than I can count, have cast upon me their judgment. You're not this, you're not that, you're not this, you're not that. And after 25 years, you know, I would be going insane under all of that, if it wasn't for the fact that I know this passage deep in my heart and I know who I belong to and I know that no matter what I do and my sins, I am still a righteous man because of what Jesus has done for me. I don't have to be ashamed. And you don't either. So let's go to God in prayer. And you just close your eyes, and in your own mind, God can hear your thoughts. You pray to him, and you ask him to include you in the covenant. Father, thank you for giving of yourself and sending your son to take my place. When I think about it, Lord, it moves me deeply. Because I know I don't deserve it. I know what an evil wretch I am. But I have faith in you, Jesus, you're my Savior. And I receive your sacrifice for me. I want to be a part of your family. Draw me in, Jesus. Holy Spirit, work on hearts and minds right now. Confirming your love. In Jesus' name, amen.
You know, if you're a Christian already, some of you are, I hope that this simple phrase, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, I hope for you Christians that it renews the joy of your salvation. There's so much packed in that little bit of phrase, right? Because Jesus is the Lamb of God, I know who I am now. I know why I'm on this earth. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what my life is all about and what it means. I know the value of who I am. I know where I'm going. All because He was the Lamb. It tells me who I am. And it gives me great joy. So rejoice in your salvation. And the rest of you, if you, if you prayed that for the first time or maybe in a very long time, tell somebody. Tell somebody. Tell them, hey, today I, I affirm my relationship with God and I'm starting new with Him. Tell somebody. You'll be so glad you did. <laughs>